Hey, podcast listeners. We at Politically Speaking are trying to do things a little bit differently these days. We're launching a news roundup show, and this is our first time testing out this new format. So we'd like to hear from you and what you think about it. Please contact us at feedback at stlpublicradio.org. And let's hit the music. This is Politically Speaking, the longest-running episodic podcast about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. Well, we want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Welcome to the latest episode of Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Julie O'Donoghue, and I'm here with my co-hosts... Jason Rosenbaum. And... Jacqueline Driscoll. And we are talking about the top political news stories of the week of September 30th through October 4th. We're recording this episode on Thursday, October 3rd. So any news that happens uh, late breaking Thursday is likely not included. Yeah. So if Governor Parson appoints me to the Board of Freeholders, we're not going to talk about it. I think we may add that in there. If that were to happen, it would be a surprise <laughs> to me considering I didn't apply. But and also I live in St. Louis County, so I'm ineligible. Oh, rats. <laughs> this joke, this joke failed miserably. I think it was a good joke. I'm not sure it's a joke, Jason. I would totally be on board with you being on the board of freeholders. Wait, was that our first topic we were going to talk about today? <laughs> it was. Oh, my uh, God. So we're starting out getting an update on what's happening with the board of freeholders. So, Jason, can you tell us what happened this week? Well, Sam Page, the St. Louis County Executive, appointed his nine members to the Board of Freeholders. Uh, For our listeners who have not listened to my 3,000 stories on this topic, um, Page appoints nine members as the St. Louis County Executive, and Cruson appoints nine members as the St. Louis Mayor. As I humorously alluded to earlier, Parson appoints the final member. All of these appointees from Cruson and Page have to go through their respective legislative chambers. So Cruisons have to be approved by the Board of Aldermen. Pages have to be approved by the County Council. And there are a couple of interesting, like, I was going to say quirks, but the, the more accurate term is requirements. For example, f- only five of the members can be a, a member of the same political party. Page and Cruisen are Democrats. But it doesn't mean that the other four have to be Republicans. They could be independents. They could be members of the Green Party. They could be natural law party members. They could be Whigs, know-nothings, any other obscure third party, as you kind of catch my drift. And I would say that the response of people to Page's appointments, which include former county executive candidate Mark Montavani, former Bi-State Development Chief John Nations, Northwest Roasting Company, and Clayton School Board member Jason Wilson, among others. Pretty positive for the most part. There, there was at least one person who I encountered out of the county council who was a little upset that it was people that weren't under the age of 40. I think most of the people were between 40 and, and 60 or 70 years old. But I don't think that they're going to have any trouble getting approved by the county council. I think generally the, the, the picks have been well received. 
So now that we know the picks that Sam Page has made in St. Louis County have been well-received, how is that going in the city? I would say that Cruson's picks have not been as well-received as Page's for a lot of reasons. Number one, Cruson made her selections very quickly, and it I think it gave the impression that there wasn't as much time and effort and thought that went into the picks. I'm not saying that's what happened, but some people accused her of that. I think that there also were some nominees, like the Reverend Earl Nance, who one person on Twitter actually posted his application. And that one of the questions was, why are you interested in serving on the board of freeholders slash electors? And the entirety of Reverend Nance's answer is, I care about the city and the future of this city. And that's it. And, that, and to many people, that seems like doesn't seem like a good reason to appoint to something aboard this important that could determine the city and county's governmental future. Um, the, the other thing that actually Board of Aldermen President Lewis Reed talked about is that a couple of people that Cruson picked were appointed as independents, even though they have some track records of either working in Democratic mayoral administrations or running for office as Democrats. And Reed told you, Julie, that they could have some trouble going through committee next week. And then I know there's some questions about the party affiliations and all that stuff that uh, that they're they're working through to, to you know validate that the people are from the various different parties that they're saying they're from, because we don't want the. Uh, future court challenge to unravel the whole thing, right? So we don't want to go through this work and then find out that someone made it through uh, without the appropriate the appropriate con- credentials. Right. So it seems like he he's not saying actually that he has concerns that that person may not be an independent like they say they are. He's more concerned about down the line, if there's a lawsuit, that that could be open a window for someone to challenge the process. I think that's what a lot of people are concerned about that actually want to see this process do something. And for people that don't know, the Board of Freeholders can present consolidation of certain services like they did with the Metropolitan Sewer District. It could put a city-county merger plan before voters, like the city joining St. Louis County as a municipality. It, it could also deadlock and offer nothing. So there, there's a lot of different options. But first, this board actually has to be approved. And also Parsons still needs to make his appointment to the Board of Freeholders, although he's not under the same time constraints as the mayor and county executive were. Okay, I think we're going to move on to our next topic. The new very large abortion clinic in Illinois that is about 13 miles from Missouri's only clinic that performs abortions in St. Louis. So this news broke on Wednesday. CBS put up a fairly lengthy article about this new abortion clinic that was built or designed, because I don't think they built the building, I think the building existed, purchased and sort of readied in secret through a shell corporation. Planned Parenthood said that they did that because they have had numerous problems when they've had new facilities going up where you can access abortion. And they they were pretty detailed to CBS. They said in some places, people won't uh, provide them services. 
I think they said a cabinet maker one time didn't show up with their cabinets once they found out what the clinic was going to be used for. And sometimes people who do provide services to abortion clinics, again, we're talking about stuff like installing cabinets and and the like, then become the targets of social media campaigns from anti-abortion activists where they trash their business. So this was all the justification for sort of doing this in secret. It seems like very few people knew this facility was being built. I think it's safe to say, since we're part of the local media, certainly it seemed to take the local media by surprise, both in St. Louis and in Illinois and Belleville. I think it is a reaction to some of the restrictive laws that Missouri has passed, not only this year, but in, in past years. And I'm sure that Jacqueline has more insight on this, but Illinois has gone in the opposite direction. And right. It essentially made abortion a constitutional right. It, it didn't really surprise. I know that there is an anti-abortion right sentiment in Illinois, but it's it's so marginalized that, I mean, I, I don't think that there would be a huge outcry to something like this, maybe with the exception of some local people that live in Fairview Heights that are opposed to abortion rights. I would say since it is positioned in a downstate area, that area tends to be more conservative. Um, But again, for the most part, Illinois, they are supportive of abortion rights. And I should say we don't have to speculate. I think Planned Parenthood, which is is the if we haven't said so far, the organization opening the clinic has explicitly said that because of the stricter rules in Missouri, the clinic that already exists over in Illinois is overwhelmed. In fact, I think they said that they are seeing double the number of people crossing into Illinois seeking abortions since 2017. And that's one of the reasons that they are they they are opening this facility. I will just say that if you live in the St. Louis area, it may not be difficult to get to Fairview Heights, maybe with the exception if you don't have a car or transportation. It doesn't really change the situation if you don't live close to St. Louis. Let's say you live in central or northern or southern Missouri and you want to get an abortion somehow and you don't have transportation to get to either St. Louis or the Kansas City area. I'm not sure that this facility will be a solution if you want that. You know, maybe I'm alone in this, but when I think of abortion, I think of a surgical procedure. But of course, you can have an abortion via medication. I think what's happening is the St. Louis Clinic no longer offers an abortion by medication, by a pill, because of some sort of pelvic exam they have to do in order to give out the pill. And so those people are being referred when they come to St. Louis. If they want an abortion by medication, they're being referred to Illinois anyways, uh, is my understanding from reading the article by CBS News, um, which uh, you you could understand why that's creating a big influx of people to Illinois, frankly. Um, if a woman's seeking an abortion and she has the option between taking a pill or having surgery, I suspect a lot of women are going to want to take a pill. Uh, <laughs> and if that means they have to drive to Illinois to do it, uh, then I can see where they probably are going to do that. Jason, how do how do legislators in Missouri who are working to uh, eliminate abortion, how do they perceive these things when they happen in Illinois? That's a good I haven't really asked any of them that question, but it does kind of produce another question of how effective. What is the effect of what they're doing? As I just mentioned before, I do think there is an effect if you don't live close to one of the major urban areas of the state. 
it's very, very difficult for you to have access to an abortion if you don't have transportation. Um, so there's that effect. But I think that it, if, if, if you are a woman that has an unplanned pregnancy for any reason and want to get an abortion and you do live close to Kansas City or St. Louis, I'm not really sure that the new laws are really going to stop you if you can just go over the border and, and get what you want, so to speak. I assume that there are probably a lot of a lot of people, and I think we're seeing a little bit of it, of people who feel very strongly about abortion are opposed to it, who are horrified that this clinic is going up. I mean, it's it's being called a mega clinic. Right. I mean, I think that people who are opposed to abortion um, living in Illinois are going to be very disappointed by this, especially when you hear people calling it a mega clinic, like people are coming here you know, coming to Illinois to essentially, you know, what people believe is to abort babies. I, I, p- people who are, you know, religiously or just personally opposed to the idea, I think are going to be very upset by this. Um, but I know that in reading that article there, you know, I, I believe it was like since 2016, um, the clinic near St. Louis had essentially been inundated. Like it had seen an increase of patients at 300% larger. So, I, I mean, it seems as though they had a need to get a bigger facility, but I think um, some of the people who are just opposed to the idea of abortion in Southern Illinois are going to be disappointed by this. Okay, we need to take a break. And unfortunately, we're losing Jacqueline for a bit. When we come back, Jason and I will be talking to Jeremy Kohler of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And Jason and I are back from break. We're joined by a new guest, Jeremy Kohler. Jeremy is an investigative reporter with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. He focuses on issues in St. Louis County. Jeremy's here to talk to us today about a Kind of an ongoing story that concerns Mayor Lida Krusen asking St. Louis County for police officers to help in the city. And last Sunday, Jeremy ran a story in which he uncovered that the mayor actually didn't initially make this request directly of county officials. She instead requested Tom Irwin with Centene. He's an executive there. She requested that he help her, I guess, get the county to give her police officers to work in the city. And I'm going to let Jeremy explain this story because it's a little bit complicated, but hopefully he will also tell us why it matters. So let's get to it. A couple of weeks ago, the county executive, Sam Page, uh, dedicated 18 extra county police officers to Metrolink to ride into the city and patrol the, um, patrol the, the lines, uh, the Metrolink line in the city. And um, our city hall reporter, Mark Schlinkman, had asked Mayor Krusen, has the city ever asked for the county's help before? And Mayor Krusen said, as a matter of fact, earlier this year, we asked for 42 police officers. And right away, the county, um, the, the chief of staff to Sam Page, Winston Calvert, um, and the county police chief, John Belmer, said, that didn't happen. We, ne- we don't know anything about that. So um, so went back to the mayor and said, can you tell us more about this request? And she said that there had been a meeting earlier this year with some civic leaders that she had participated in with, and Belmer was there. 
and Stenger was there, Steve Stenger, uh, where she had made this request. And again, Belmer said that's that that didn't happen. That didn't happen. I was at a meeting, but that but there was not a request for forty two officers. And she did say that there was some kind of written record that came out of that. So I filed a Sunshine request for the record, and um, and they provided it late last week. And it was a letter that she wrote, not on city letterhead, just on a on a blank piece of paper. And it said, "Dear Tom, um, thanks for organizing this meeting. Um, it was great to hear everyone's ideas about how we can combine the city and county police departments, and uh, and also report." crime stats under one report instead of multiple reports. And by the way, as a short-term solution, short-term solution, um, I'd like to propose that the county provide 42 police officers to start immediately working in the city. Um, again, went to the county. They said, we never received this letter. Um, it just was sent directly to Tom Irwin. And Irwin said he just put it in a file. He just figured that the city and the county were working it out. I think what was jarring to me is oftentimes I've described political factions in St. Louis through various ways. And the ways I usually described the faction that Mayor Krusen and former county executive Stanger belonged to was the corporate labor faction. Because if you look at their campaign reports, they get a lot of donations from labor unions and a lot of donations from corporations that are funneled through political action committees because of various state laws. I was struck, though, that this went beyond just their political support. They're actually asking corporate leaders to intervene in governmental matters. Was that surprising to you? It was. The other surprising thing is that uh, Better Together was still a going concern at that at this stage. It was the middle of March, and Better Together uh, was getting a lot of criticism, but it was still planning to go ahead with its merger. And they had their own they had their own police merger idea, which you know that was you know corporately backed. Rex uh, Sinkfeld was a major donor to that. And so there were like multiple corporate interests at the same time kind of working on what the future of the city and county and policing would, would, would look like. And, and the mayor and, and Stenger were, they obviously had their ears. I, yeah, I'm going to back up what Jason said. I found it bizarre that you would want help from St. Louis County on police work and you would decide to send a letter to an intermediary and yet never send a letter, and it's not clear to me whether this is deliberate or not, to the county to ask them directly for support. Do you have a sense of why she wouldn't have just gone directly to the county and asked for this help? In her defense, this letter was sent the same day that the county was served with a subpoena signaling that Sanger was in trouble, and you know it really took a month from there. So... The, the county government structure at that point was in the process of blowing up. And so, um, you know, and that and she has said that was a factor in working with the county on, on something moving forward. Now, had that not happened um, and, and a, a, another month had gone by, would you have seen some follow-up between Krusen and Stenger and, and the police chiefs working something out? It's hard. It's impossible to say. I think that there's a broader political question here. Uh, Mayor Krusen ran for office in 2017 implicitly promising that she would bring crime under control. She said neighborhood safety was her number one priority. And now flash forward two years, she and a lot of Democrats are asking for Parson to come in and help the city's crime problem. And I've talked with people privately, even people that are seemingly close to Mayor Cruz, and they feel like she hasn't really 
fulfilled that promise of reducing crime and the fact that they have to like make Parson the boogeyman is kind of an unsaid thing that she's not getting it done. Does things like what was uncovered in this article bring up more questions about whether that campaign promise has really been able to be delivered? I I think it does, but also it's you know at the same time the city police is down you know they're at like ninety percent capacity they're they're down one hundred and thirty police officers and she you know and I think at the time of this meeting that with the CEOs that the county police department was mostly full staffed now that's actually fallen off now so you know they have a they have a, the economy is good right now and there's not a lot of demand to be a police officer and so they're having a hard time filling a lot of those positions and that. You know that whether that whether or not that actually affects the crime rate, um, you could debate. But um, you know, devil's advocate. I mean, you know, she is meeting with people who have the power to potentially help reverse that crime rate. Um, But on on the flip side, doing it in a very opaque way that you know you that you don't find out about until six months later through a sunshine request. The county executive and the mayor snipe at each other in public quite a bit in my, in my opinion do you all what do you all think of their dynamic what what do you think is going on here uh it is surprising to see um you know i, I think it was uh, an email that came up in a sunshine request that i got between um the chief of staff for page winston calvert and steve conway um the mayor's chief um you know winston said something like I was really surprised that when we met with the governor last week that you didn't ask us for for resources. I think that was actually one of the comments that set this whole debate off when the mayor said, well, actually, I did ask for police officers. Um, I think it's just a a reflection of, you know, the the Page's camp's belief that Cruson and Stenger were, you know, joined at the hip and they were going ahead with better together. And, you know, and, and Page, like Jason said, coming from outside that. He's, he's not part of that structure. Yeah, I think it was objectively true that they were joined at the hip politically. They used the same political consultants. They had some of the same political donors. And they were jointly in favor of creating this mega city with Stanger as the all-powerful mega mayor. I don't think any of that is opinion. That's objectively true. And I think that the corporate labor faction that I talked about is facing a—, a, a a challenge for survival. It's completely collapsed in St. Louis County. Richard Callow, who I mentioned earlier, pretty much controls almost all of the power structure now in the county. And the only person left is Cruson. And she's vulnerable to be toppled if what I like to call the woke white progressives band together with the African-American community in the city. She's, She's toast politically. Her only way that she survives is if that division continues. So I'm not surprised the fact that they're sniping at each other because they belong to completely different mindsets and completely different political factions. And I think that uh, Page's camp sees Cruson at a very weak point politically. And I, I think it's kind of playing out this way unsurprisingly. What do you hope is the main takeaway that people take away from this whole incident with the the letter and the request and and how that has all played out. Yeah, I just think it was an interesting view at, you know, how the business leaders in the area had influence over, you know, our, our top leaders at the time, how really the average person 
um, would not have known anything about it. Um, and this could have, you know, this quite possibly could have dramatically changed policing and really the cooperation between the city and the county in a way that didn't happen at a board of aldermen meeting, didn't happen at a county council meeting. You know, it happened at, they're not even telling us where it happened. It was at a, a boardroom somewhere. So uh, I just think it's, you know, it was kind of an interesting look at that dynamic. All right. Thanks so much for talking to us, Jeremy. That was Jeremy Kohler. He's an investigative reporter who focuses on St. Louis County for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. We are going to provide a link to his story, the story we discussed today, on our website in the post that's affiliated with this podcast, and you'll be able to find that at stlpublicradio.org. Okay, our last segment of the podcast is new. It's called Show Me Something, and it is a segment where we on the panel and occasionally our guests are going to recommend things about Missouri and politics. And uh, I guess we're going to start with our head honcho, Jason. Well, I didn't really find a news article, but I was reading the book American Carnage by Tim Alberta, who I think is one of the head political writers at Politico. It, it's a... I would... I'm not going to do a book review on this podcast, but I, I enjoyed it. I think it started to kind of peter out at the end because it kind of ends like at the beginning of 2019. It doesn't include all the Ukraine impeachment stuff that probably would have made it like a little more exciting. The reason why I'm mentioning this is there is a number of Missouri ties, including a passage about Missouri political consultant Jeff Rowe and his company Axiom. And I just want to read this part verbatim. Um, Jeff Rowe, who has been active in Missouri politics for some time, was in charge of Ted Cruz's campaign. And apparently Rowe and his associates discussed other options about where Cruz should announce his presidential hopes in 2015, I believe. Cruz's hometown of Houston, historical sites around Texas, even the Reagan Library in California. As the call dragged on, one of Rose's employees at Axiom Strategies in Missouri sent his boss an email, you should do it at Liberty, which is what they ended up doing. Ted Cruz ended up uh, launching his campaign at Liberty University in Virginia. That employee is Aaron Baker, who is a longtime uh, Missouri political consultant helper in northeast Missouri, a place that I love very dearly. I just wanted to give him a shout out for him getting a shout out in the book I just read. Okay. Um, Jacqueline, do you have anything to show us? Man, following Jason, my my book review is going to be very short because I am still in the middle of reading this book. It is actually called Red State, Blue State, Rich State, Poor State. Have either of you heard of this book? No. No. It is by Andrew Gelman, and it's it's a little dated. It, it uh, talks about uh, it has some data and it has some graphics in it that ex- that explain the 2008 election. It talks about why Americans vote the way that they do. Um, it, you know, there's obviously there's, I mean, this country is very divided, especially right now as we're seeing everything that's going on with the impeachment inquiry. So it's kind of interesting to look back at it through that lens. But, um, you know, it's talking about the nation being divided between red and blue, conservative and liberal, rich and poor. Um, And it kind of debunks the stereotypes um, as to why 
people vote the way that they do. So it's a really interesting book. It's a little dated, as I mentioned. It talks about the 2008 election, but I think it's interesting to look back at it through um, the lens that I can see things now in 2019. So, Thank you. Okay, and I'm going to recommend, I'm not done with this book, but I'm reading The Accidental President, which is about President Truman and his first four months in office. Um, I am not done with the book, and actually I'm listening to the audiobook. The narrator is uh, stupendous. Um, But I'm going to guess I'm in the bottom 10% of people in Missouri in terms of their knowledge of President Truman. Uh, certainly, Jason knows a lot more about him than I do. Yeah, I read <laughs> part of David McCullough's book, and I actually stopped reading when he became president because I found his Missouri-based history more important. It's sort of like Claire McCaskill's autobiography, Plenty Ladylike. I certainly was interested in what she learned about in the Senate, but as a Missouri political reporter who is fiercely proud of being a, a state, regional, and local reporter before a national reporter, I was actually more interested about her rise in the ranks in Missouri, similarly for McCall's book. Yeah, yeah. So The Accidental President, uh, it's excellent. I actually um, want to give a shout out to Senator Blunt's office. Uh, His staff said that this is his favorite book. I have not confirmed that, but uh, he's apparently a big fan of this book, and it's quite well done. I, I didn't know a lot about President Truman other than like broad strokes. And um, I'm fascinated. He's super fascinating. Um, his his upbringing, his life before he became vice president in particular is unusual for a president. Um, he comes from a humble background and like stayed humble. Uh, he, he didn't make like a enormous amount of money and then go into politics uh, like a lot of people do or did. Quite the opposite. Apparently after he was president, he was so hard up for money that um, when the Congress passed a bill allowing for a pension for presidents and Herbert Hoover, who was a multi multi-millionaire, took the pension himself because he didn't want to embarrass Truman, from what I remember. Huh. The, the beginning of the book is pretty fascinating because there's a lot of comparing and contrasting Truman to uh, FDR and they really could not be more different in terms of who, where they came from and, and what their experiences were. Right. I I think that's putting it mildly. But I'd also like to say like I, I actually thought Claire McCaskill's book and I totally agree with Jason. I also listened to the audiobook. She reads it herself. Uh, I, I thought it gave me a lot of really good uh, context. I did not find the later stuff uh, as interesting because it was more just a rehashing of whatever current events were going on then. But I found all of her stuff about her time in the state legislature to be interesting. Obviously, you have to listen to it with a with some sort of skepticism about, you know, this is from Claire McCaskill's perspective. Right. But it, but it was, she, she covered a lot of ground and I thought it was really interesting. And I just want to make clear, I, I wasn't not interested in the national stuff because what she did in the Senate wasn't important. I just am not as interested in national politics as I am in state politics. So anybody who comes on politically speaking who's a federal politician should know that you have to excite me or I'm going to be bored throughout the whole show. <laughs> I also I mean I also just think she could be more honest about about her time in the state house than she could be about her time in the Senate because she wrote it when she was still in the Senate and running for re-election. All right. Thank you so much. And we'd love to hear feedback from our listeners about this format and what you like and don't like. Uh, Please 
uh, contact us. You can find me on Twitter at J.S. O'Donohue. You can find Jason. J. Rosenbaum. And you can find Jacqueline. Driscoll NPR. And you can find our work at stlpublicradio.org. Thank you very much. I was living in a devil town Didn't know it was a devil town Oh Lord, it brings me down About the devil town